Well, good morning. <laughs> I know it's a little, a little, uh, stay with me today. I know it's a little bit darker out there, you know, the storm's outside and such. Um, I remember, by the way, when I first got here, I don't know if you guys were, remember this, I remember the first, I had not heard a thunderstorm in decades. Um, I'm from Los Angeles, if you're new, and so we didn't really get thunderstorms out there. Matter of fact, we didn't even get rain. Um, we, like, borrowed water from you to, uh, to survive. But um, I remember we were in the, the, in the MAC in the high school gym, and I was doing some Q&A, and it started raining, hitting that roof, and I was, you know, I was like, I'm used to shotgun sounds, you know? So it's like taking cover. Sorry. I just thought about that just now as I was uh, thinking about the storm. Uh, we are in Psalm 63 this morning. And uh, as, as was said by Carrie, we're kind of working our way through a, a summer series. We do this every summer. Our, our habit um, as a church is to, uh, kind of our steady diet is just to go verse by verse uh, through a book of the Bible. And uh, we decide during the summertime, because people are kind of in and out, uh, people are going on vacation, people are visiting, uh, it's just better from a consistency standpoint to just take a psalm and uh, do a select psalm every, every, every week during the summer. And uh, today we find ourselves in Psalm 60. So let me pray for us. God, we do ask that uh, you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We ask, God, that you would unite our heart to fear your name. You would remove distractions, uh, concerns, and anxieties that weigh on our hearts today. Remove fears and things that are, uh, have happened, um, concerns and things we have. God, we ask that you would satisfy us with your loving kindness, that, God, we may be glad all day long. We long to be satisfied with you today. We long to have our souls filled up with who you are and who Christ is and who he is for us and what he's done for us. And we pray, God, that you be glorified through our time and that you would help us be attentive and uh, to hear what you have to say to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was, uh, it was late September, around the year 30... A.D. in Jerusalem. The temperature was probably comfortable uh, in the 70s. The city uh, of Jerusalem was, was jam-packed. People had traveled for hundreds of miles, many from many different countries to get there. Everyone was camped out in the streets. Even those who lived in the city had moved outside of their homes to actually uh, live outside their homes during this time. It would, be, it would be resembling kind of Speedway during Indianapolis 500, right? Just packed with people everywhere, people setting up tents, people all over the place. Parents and children would have uh, worked together to form what looked like lean-tos, uh, tents made out of wood. Each was covered in branches, and the roof was thatched with twigs and such. It was a hole opening at the top uh, to provide some, some, uh, some view of the sun and moon stars. Uh, we find that, uh, that you can see the pictures on the screen. This is kind of a modern-day representation of what takes place even today in Jerusalem uh, during this time. And so every day for an entire week, uh, they would live in these, and they would emerge every single day for seven straight days, and they would come out carrying something very peculiar in their hands. They had a, a lulev, which was they, in one hand was a symbol of suffering, and an etrog in the other was a symbol of provision. And so they would take these, you can see a picture of what these would look like, um, and there was a combination of three different branches that would be found in the wilderness that are out in that time, a palm, a willow, and a myrtle. And the etrog was a piece of fruit, resembled, it looks kind of like a, a, a lemon. If they were Legos, um, just for you kids, this is what it would look like. Um, just, trying to, just trying to contextualize to all audiences here. Um, 
And uh, they would hold these, so they would connect all of these, kind of like the Lego guy, gal has there. And, uh, and they would connect them all into one, one branch, one kind of hand, and they would hold them all together. And they would hold them up high, forming a kind of covering as they kind of marched down through the city. They would do this every single day. On the seventh day, uh, they, would, they would all come out and they would collect together and they would hold their breath, as it were, as a priest would emerge at the city center with a, to the massive altar that was there with a large um, golden pitcher in his hands. The crowds would kind of part and make room for him to come through. He would go down to the pool of Siloam and he would, he would fill it with water, kind of what it looks like here is an artist's representation of the pool of Siloam. And as he returned, he would go through the water gate. You can see kind of opening there on the side and the crowds would all recite the following, Isaiah twelve three. They would recite this, all together, you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. They would repeat that and they would say this. This is what in modern day is called the celebration of Sukkot, otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles. If you've read kind of the Leviticus in the Old Testament or Feast of Booths, that's what this was. Every year they would celebrate this. They'll do it today. And the Jewish people would celebrate this in the month of September. And it was there to commemorate, right? It was there for remembrance sake. You say, what were they trying to remember? They were trying to remember their ancestors' experience. Remember our study in, in Exodus when they left Exodus, when they left through the Red Sea, they went out into the wilderness, and they had an experience where they lived out in these kind of temporary housing places, these lean-tos that they lived in. And they were celebrating not necessarily the tents themselves, as much as what they were celebrating was how God provided for their ancestors out in the wilderness, water. And not water from the sky or water from a stream, but water from a rock. And the reason they quoted that verse in Isaiah was because they knew that God's provision of water and thus satisfaction of thirst was a picture of the one God would ultimately send to give them water of life to give them eternal satisfaction. So this was a celebration in the anticipation of the Messiah coming, who would ultimately satisfy their souls. Now, let's go back to that scene with the priest. He's there with his golden pitcher of water. He lifts it up high, high above his head, and all the people would begin to chant and tell him, hold it higher, hold it higher, and he would hold it up, and people would just jam-pack all over around this altar to watch. This was considered one of the highlights of a Jewish person's life was to be able to witness the, the pouring out of the water onto the altar. Matter of fact, the Mishnah, which is kind of a Jewish commentary, um, said this, that, quote, he that never has seen the joy of the water drawing and pouring has never in his life seen joy. So it was, this is was a big deal to them to anticipate this, to see this. And as the priest would hold the picture up, you can imagine he would hold it up really high and he's got this thing full, his kind of muscles are twitching and he's holding it up and all of a sudden he would wait for the three, the horn to be blown three different times. Uh, and this horn would be blown, this was um, something that would be blown called the, the shofar or the ram's horn. And they would blow that one, two, three times. And on the third blow, he would he'd pour the water out and the crowds would rent the air with applause, right? Everyone's like, yeah, I was all excited. This was a celebration. This was the anticipation that one day the Messiah would come to give them life, to give them uh, eternal life. And so as they, as they did this uh, and celebrated this picture, they would wave their branches and their, their ethrog in the air, you know, and they would, they would celebrate that. They would recite the, what's called the Hallel, which is the Psalms uh, 113 through 118, and they would start singing those psalms together. It was just a big party, a big celebration. It was at that moment that a young man in his 30s broke the routine. 
He stepped in front of the altar, and the songs kind of dissipated and ceased. Everyone fixed their eyes on this man. What was he doing? Why was he stopping the party? Why, how dare he walk up in front of the altar where the priest is and, and, and stand there? What is he going to do? And he said these words, John 7, 37 through 38. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. That person was Jesus Christ. And he made an audacious statement right there, didn't he? He just stood in front of them and said, everything that you're celebrating right now, everything that you're, you're anticipating is found in me, he said. Unmistakably, unequivoc- unequivocally, he was claiming to be the Messiah that they all wanted. He was proclaiming that he was the answer to their prayers. He was the life-giving water. He was the one who had come to give them life. He was the one who came to fill the void Uh, in their hearts to give them rest. He had come to rescue them, bring them to the Father, Father, and satisfy the deep longing of of their souls. And this is the truth that kind of echoes throughout the Scriptures, this deep satisfaction that comes in the person and work of the Messiah. Listen, Psalm 107, verse 9, speaking of God, He will satisfy the thirsty. Psalm, um, Jeremiah 31, 14, my people will be satisfied with my goodness. Jeremiah 31, 25, I will satisfy the thirsty person. Isaiah 55, 1, come, everyone who's thirsty, come to the water. Then Jesus would say this, Matthew eleven twenty eight. come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And the Bible ends with these statements. Revelation 21, 6, I, God speaking, will freely give to the thirsty from the springs of the water of life. And then last chapter of the Bible, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. This is a theme running through here throughout the Bible. Jesus is the all-satisfying God. He is the one you have been created and made for. He is the home for the wandering soul, the water for the thirsty soul, the peace for the troubled soul, and the rest for the weary soul. How do you know if you've come home? How do you know if your soul has found rest in God? How do you know if you've been satisfied with Christ, if you've come all the way to Jesus? Some here today are assured of these facts. Some are wrestling with this, and I dare say some in this room may be fooled by the fact of thinking that they have actually come all the way to Christ. Some of you are just starting your relationship with Christ. Some of you are just beginning to walk with Him, have come to Christ recently, and you have a lot of questions. Some of you have been around church maybe very briefly. You're not quite sure what this is all about. You don't know what we're doing here necessarily. You know, you're asking the questions. What, what is this gospel in Jesus thing? What is Christianity? Are we just here kind of playing games? Um, Are we really following Jesus here? Is there some lingo I need to follow, some ritual I need to go through? Are there things I'm supposed to be doing? Am I supposed to be wearing a glib smile on my face all the time? Is that what this is about? When I'm following Jesus, is it it always supposed to be like the Moses and the Red Sea parting or Joshua and the walls falling or David and Goliath, you know, collapsing? Are there ups and downs? Are there doubts? Uh, What does this look like? In Psalm 63... We're going to attempt to answer those questions, and we're going to see that the person who has come to Christ, 
the person who, is, who believes in him, who, as Jesus says, has streams of living water flowing through them, who has laid down their life, trusted in him, that they're going to have a thirst for God. They're going to remember God, feast on God, praise God, obey God, and hope in God. Those are kind of the characteristics. Those are the evidences, and we'll look at each and every one of them together. Number one, first evidence is that there's a thirst for God. Do you thirst? Is there a hunger, a thirst for God? That's what we see in David. Look at verse 1. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you. The psalm tells us, if you read the little sub, uh, subscript, I guess you'd say at the very beginning there, if you look down at your Bible, it says a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judea. That's a good, it kind of gives us a little setting of when he penned this, when, what, what was going on in his life when he wrote this. And that's important to know because it gives us perspective on the things that he is saying. It says he was in the wilderness. What was he doing in the wilderness? Well, if you read, go back and read Samuel, you will find that he was running. He was hiding And he wasn't just running and hiding from anybody. He was running and hiding from his own son, Absalom. And David is away from the people of God. He is away from the temple of God and is not only in mortal danger, but he has a heart-crushing reality that he's facing of his own son who's out to kill him. But as he's hiding out, trying to save his life here, panic-stricken by every twig snapped in the woods as if he was living in the world of the walking dead, we find that he still thirsts. He still thirsts for God. And the language is not one of a stranger kind of feeling his way towards God, but of an eagerness of a lover to be in touch with the one he can't get his mind off of. It is my God. You see that in the text? David says, this is my God whom David seeks. It's not my friend's God, not my mom's God, my dad's God, my pastor's God. It's my God that I'm seeking. See, the way you know you have encountered the living God is that you develop a a spiritual appetite for God. The way you know you're moving close to God in some ways, actually, is that you feel too far from Him. Sounds a little ironic, but it's the way it works. A sense of God's absence may actually be a sign of God's presence. You You feel the distance. Many of you know what this is like. You, you can't keep from going back to God even when you, you want to leave him, even when you want to walk away. You just, it's like a boomerang. You just get thrown and you come right back again. You're just drawn back into God no matter how far you try to run away. I've witnessed many people's conversions over the last 20 plus years of ministry and seen people come to know Christ and seen the radical transformation. It's always a joy to, to watch that transformation and get to, get to see that. Um, I remember uh, hearing people say things like, you know, I've, I've come to church a few times when I was younger. I maybe came on Easter and Christmas later on. I got married, had kids. It was kind of what I was supposed to do. I mean, I've had people say that, right? Maybe this is you, like Easter, Christmas. And you're here today. You're like, whoa, it's not Easter or Christmas. We're glad you're here. Um, but, you know, they, they, they do that. And they're like, okay, I can't wait. And, and then all of a sudden, it, they, they rarely come. And all of a sudden, there comes a time in their life. They come to Christ. And all of a sudden, the anticipation changes. They're like, I can't wait to come back. I can't wait to be around the people of God. I can't wait to hear the word of God. And the funny thing is, is that a month prior to that conversation, or a month prior to those kind of statements, they wouldn't have been caught dead in the church, right? You see a transformation has taken place. A desire has taken place. That's what I love about David. I think the reason why he again is called a man after God's own heart. It surely wasn't, by the way, because he was a great guy and he had it all together, all right? Guy committed adultery, 
He murdered a guy. He lied through his teeth on multiple occasions. He was greedy at times, insecure. Oh, yeah, and he was a terrible father. His son's trying to kill him. He had more wives than your average polygamous cult leader, right? I mean, he had a ton of wives. I mean, it was just bad. This guy was not doing well at all at times. But what he had going for him was thirst. What he had going for him was repentance. He always turned to God in his stupidity and sin. He always turned back, right? He always deep down thirsted for God. He always came back home. Techniques for survival, awareness of where the arrows would be flying from, a keen sense of how much food to ration were all floating in and out of David's mind as he's out there in the wilderness hiding out. But the one sensation that he couldn't shake was his deep thirst for God. Do you have that sensation? Do you thirst for God? If so, it is a sign a sign of a deep heart transformation, a sign that you have streams of living water flowing from your soul. A second evidence we find of those who have come to Christ is that there's a remembrance of God. You remember him. Verse 2, David says this, So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. Now again, where is he? He's not there, is he? This is a very important observation here, okay? He's not in the temple. He's not in the sanctuary. He's out in the wilderness. He's hiding underneath bushes and trees, and he's trying to save his life, right? And yet here he says, I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. He's alone with his thoughts, out in the middle of the wilderness, and where do they drift to? His thoughts don't drift to the family home nestled up by the warm fire, to the successes of his work as a king or of his kingdom. He doesn't drift to the thought of a triumphant battle that he won or his comrades he served with. That's not where his mind goes. That's where his, not where his thoughts go. David's mind drifts to his experiences of God in a place, in a building. In essence, we would say his mind, modern day, his mind drifts towards his experiences of God at church. His mind drifts towards his times in the sanctuary where he sensed the power and glory of God. You see, he's drawing from that experience. The times where God impressed himself upon his heart from maybe a time of singing or a, a word from a sermon or a God-centered kind of conversation or a testimony that he heard. He, he remembered key times that God plucked the strings of his heart and brought him to conviction. He's drawing from those moments in time. Now, he's not there right now. He's in the woods hiding out. But he is drawing from the, his times there. And listen, you, he could only draw from those experiences because he frequented the places himself and put himself in the position to experience God so that when he wasn't there, he had something to draw from. And the evidence was not, by the way, that he attended a service per se, as much as it was he, he longed to be there. He longed to be where God's people were. He longed to be where God's word was preached because it was there that he had some of his greatest experiences of God that he could draw from. You know the application is, right? If you make it to church, right, when you, when you feel like it, right, when it's convenient for you, when the weather's good, which is not right now, right, um, you won't have much to draw from. You won't have much to draw from in the wilderness times of your life. David is in the wilderness. He's drawing from the times of his relationship with God, the experiences of God with the people of God in the place of God. 
Listen, it's not every Sunday. You need to understand this and make sure you set your expectations clearly. It's not every Sunday that God is going to show up in a special way in your life, in a way that, that hits you right between the eyes with some conviction or some new idea you didn't think of before and some marvelous thing that you're kind of just wrapped around and it just it convicts you, carries with you, and goes with you throughout the week. That doesn't happen every Sunday, right? I know. You say, Chris, I know. I've heard enough sermons of yours. You've had some duds, right? I know. Um, but if you're inconsistent, and this is the point, if you're inconsistent, you rarely ever know those kind of times because you don't put yourself there enough to experience those times. Sometimes you're coming to a church service may not be for something you actually need at the moment, okay? Sometimes God actually is teaching you something, bringing something to your mind for remembrance for something that's about to come up that you don't even know what's about to happen. Maybe you're storing up memories. You're building up spiritual muscle, as it were, to fight or lift something heavy in the near future. Maybe your time at church service, maybe it's not even for you. Maybe it is for the sake of someone else, of something you have learned, something you take with that you can share that impacts someone else, you see? It's not just about you and what you're benefiting from, but how you benefit others. I remember when I first came to Christ at 18 years of age, I had, again, never really been in church services before, and I was pretty terrified. <laughs> and maybe this is you, so if this is you, I resonate with you. Um, I was pretty terrified of big church, so we called it, you know, big church. Um, I'd go to youth group a few times. That's kind of how I got in. The youth group drew me in. I was hanging out with the teenagers, and I was okay to go to the youth group, but coming to big church, you know, sitting in the pews was really, really scary to me. Um, I, don't, I don't really like big crowds, which is, I think, God's irony in my life is that here I stand <laughs> in front of all of you. Um, but I don't know. I don't know why I was so terrified other than that. I mean, I don't know if I was scared they were going to be handling snakes or they're going to be all drinking Kool-Aid or something. I, I don't know. But I was terrified of actually coming into the big room with all the people. But when I, when I went in and I got a taste of it, and I got a taste of the Word of God and seeing the people of God and watching people pray and watching people sing and watching people listen and take notes and seeing and feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit and all that. I couldn't get enough. I was in that door whenever they were open, right? I mean, I was, I was following people around. I was probably stalking people. I'm like, tell me about Jesus more, right? I mean, I'm just like following them around. I wanted, I wanted to know more because I wanted that experience. I wanted to draw from that. It was with God's people. Is that you? Do, do you? Or do you find every excuse in the book to avoid being a church? Okay? We don't talk about that a lot, right? If you're new, by the way, we don't have, every Sunday sermon is not one about church attendance, okay? I think it's my, maybe, it's maybe the first time I've ever addressed this in three years. But it, 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 this is an important application for you. You've got to put yourself underneath the Word of God and be with the people of God in order to experience the power and the grace and glory of God so that you have something to draw from. That's where David is. He's out there in the wilderness. It's dry, it's barren, it's scary, and he's drawing from those times. He's drawing from them. But it goes, it goes beyond Sunday morning services here. Look at verse 6 of the psalm. When I think of you as I, where? I lie on my bed. I meditate on you during the night watches because you are my helper. Experiencing God, his grace and glory is not confined to a Sunday morning. God is not imprisoned to a church service. It is where David pulls from first, but it's not exclusively where he pulls from. David remembers God from his time at his home when he was up late at night as a security guard, right? This implies that he used some of his time at home and work to to meditate on God, to seek God in those ways. 
It was these experiences of God through a revelation in the Word or through God-ordained circumstances or through just observing God's character in the created world that David drew from. It wasn't his time at home playing video games or watching a film. Those things aren't bad. But if those are all the experiences you've got to draw from, if those are only things that you have to draw from, you're going you're gonna to be hard. It's going to be hard for you, right? They won't sustain you in times of isolation. They won't sustain you in times of coldness and indifference. I can, I can remember in my life, outside of the church itself, I can remember places in my life. I, I, I remember, I, I actually listed them right here. I, I, I draw from a pew in Danville, Virginia, where I came to Christ. I remember that moment. I draw from a church bus ride up the East Coast. Uh, being around Christians for the first time in my life and having 12 hours of conversation of figuring out what Christianity is all about. I had a porch on the dorm of my, uh, of my dorm in New York, a stage in a church in New York, a, a walk through a neighborhood in Alabama, a gravesite in Virginia, a lake in Minnesota, a mountain in California, a Bible study on New Hampshire streets, a, a couch in a home on Edgemont, a sidewalk on the streets of Hollywood. These are all places that I remember times where God encountered God, whether it be through, through the study of the Word of God, the hearing of the Word of God, an encounter with, with a situation where I had to recall something from the Word of God. It, it, all, it all is places that I remember. Do you have that? Do you have those in your memory to draw from in the times of dryness? What experiences of the power and glory of God can you draw from? This, this, is, this is real practical right here. Some people are like, Chris is not practical. Okay, here's practical. Take two hours. Get out a piece of paper or get your iPad or phone out or computer out and take two hours just to write out. Say, God, help me remember. I remember moments in my life where you, you met me in a situation. Maybe it was a real a moment of sadness and you comforted me or a time when you convicted me. Or, and start just writing them out. Just take two hours to write out those experiences and then draw from those. Remember those. Okay? That's really important to do. Take the time to do that. Do you reminisce about God's work in your life? Of God's revelation of himself to you? So it is a sign. It is a sign of coming all the way to Christ. You have streams of living water flowing from your soul. Number three, you feast on God. Verse three says this, my lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. You satisfy, satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Now, this is, this is interesting because in verse 1, we find David thirsting, and here we find him feasting, right? <laughs> and, and know that both of those experiences are just as glorifying to God. Thirsting is a form of worship of God when you're thirsting for God and you feel maybe some distance. Feasting is a form of worship of God when you feel that he's near. Both experiences, both feasting and thirsting, are experiences of worship of God, right? Here we find David is feasting on what will happen, not what has happened. You see that? His soul will be satisfied. He's in, this is hope. He's anticipating. He's knowing of that. He's still thirsting at the moment, but he's anticipating the feast in that way. So what was it about God that David was feasting on? What was it that held out hope that thirst would be turned into satisfaction? And he says it right here. He, he uses the word faithful love in this translation. Some, some use um, faithfulness of God in different translations of that. The word, Hebrew word, we looked at this before, is the word chesed, okay? H-E-S-E-D. It's a word for covenant loyalty, faithful love. David feasted on his conviction that God faithfully loved him, 
despite him. Okay? He didn't feast on his own accomplishments. Very important to note. He didn't feast on his own accomplishments, but on God's accomplishments. He didn't feast on his, on his own commitment to God, but God's commitment and love for him, right? He saw this as the best the world had to offer, right? It's better than life. It's the best thing in the world. You know, you've come to Christ when, you, when what you chew on, what you feast on is not you and your accomplishments, but Jesus and his accomplishments for you and his life, death, and resurrection. You know you've missed the boat, you know you're just playing church, right? When you, when you, you know you're lost, when what you lean on, what you feast on, what you meditate on is just how good you are or just how, how many good things you have done or how much you have served and how much you have given away. If that's what you rest on, if that's what you lean on, you don't know Christ, you're lost. You've not come to Christ when what you see the Bible being about is, is all about you and what you need to do for God to be accepted and loved by him instead of being about Jesus and what he came to do for you. You know, you've, gotten, you, you've not gotten the gospel when you just, you just play the comparison game with those around you, feeling that, you know what, you may have a better shot at heaven than so-and-so because you've got, you got a leg up on them. You're a little bit up more upright and outstanding citizen than they are, so I think you, have a, you think you have a better shot at it. You don't get the gospel. So David rested in God's accomplishments, not his own. It was this undying hope, this, this future grace, this, this faithful love of God towards him that was better than life and all it could bring. It's this faithful love that he feasts on. It's better than anything. It's better than a nice filet with a side of sweet potatoes and key lime pie with a cream on top, right? It's better than that. You're like, man, lunch is like 45 minutes away, Chris. <laughs> Chill on that. Got butter dripping off of that. It's really good, right? This is better, right? David's saying that God's faithful love for him is better than a spouse. It's better than a potential spouse. It's better than kids. It's better than friends. It's better than sex. It's better than jobs. It's better than homes. It's better than cars, football, basketball, baseball, soccer combined, right? It's better than music, than films, than phones, and Xboxes, and PS4s, and vacations, and clothes. Why? Because all of those things, no matter how good they might be, will fail you. They will all leave you, and they will all forsake you in the end. Even the most faithful spouse, they will die, or you will die. They, they will leave. They won't stay with you. It's not because they want to leave. It's just, that's just the way it is. Nothing, no one is ever meant to carry the weight of the human soul. They can't do it. But the love and the faithful love of Jesus can carry that, right? He can. Those things will never ultimately satisfy But God, because of his covenant loyalty, his faithful love, will ultimately satisfy, will never fail to love and fulfill. So do you feast on God's covenant loyalty, his faithful love to you, his grace? Do you lean on his accomplishments and his work and his redemption instead of your own merits? If so, that's a sign. It's a sign you've come all the way to Christ. Those streams of living water are flowing from your soul. Evidence number four, you praise God. You'll notice in the middle of the psalm, uh, the idea of praising God is repeated in different forms, at least five different times. Now, David, again, is out in the middle of the wilderness. He's scared. He's alone. And God is not just on David's brain, though. He's not just thinking about God. He's talking about God, okay? He's expressing about God. Look at verse 4. I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. I will rejoice, verse 7, in the shadow of your wings. 
There was no shutting David down here. There was no stopping his pursuit of satisfaction in God. His hands are, are, as it were, lifted high in the wilderness, right? Not in surrender to enemies. He's not like, don't shoot, raising the white flag. His hands are lifted in praise to God. And in doing so, what David was saying was, God, I'm all yours. I'm dry, I'm thirsty, I'm scared, I'm lonely. I'm not much, but I'm all yours. I'm all yours. This is the response of not just for those who believe that God is satisfying. But listen, this is the response of anyone who believes anything is satisfying. There's no such thing as believing something is satisfying and joyful and exciting and not praising it. Just not, not the case. If you're not praising it, then the, uh, the uh, other part's not true. You don't believe. Anything you really love, you have to praise to complete the joy of it. This is why things like Facebook and Pinterest and Twitter are so popular. They're like online bulletin boards for you to praise what you view as satisfying. And you want people to like it, right? You want people to share and go, hey, that's really cool. I like that. And you, you get a sense of satisfaction out of that, right? When you see a film you love or you hear a song that you love or you have a, a meal at a restaurant that you love, you can't help but do what? Recommend it, right? You recommend it to others. And, and if you grab someone and you watch it with them or you, you listen to it with them or you go to the restaurant and you eat with them and you, hey, you say, hey, hey, how was it? How was it? And they go, yeah, it was okay. <laughs> you're, you're kind of deflated, right? Your, your, your joy level kind of goes down. You're like, oh, but if they respond with, man, that was, the, that was the best song I've ever heard. That was the best film I've ever seen. What's the recipe for that meal? And you're like, yeah, let me tell you, man. And you're all excited, right? Why? Because they're sharing in your joy. And there's a sense of elevated joy when you speak, share, talk about what you love, and they express it back to you. When you come to realize that God's faithful love is better than life, that he is water for your thirsty soul and rest for your weary soul, you will talk about him to others. That is a natural result can't help it. And it, it is genuine, right? It's not canned. It's not forced. Why? Because you have been attacked by grace. You haven't been, co- been coerced by religion. This is where you start talking to people about Jesus. You start inviting people, you know, to come with you to church. You, you want them to hear. And listen, if you're here today and a friend bought, brought, you, brought you today, understand why they brought you, okay? They didn't, buy it, they didn't bring you here because they, you know, get a notch for their belt or an award or a plaque or whatever people may think goes on in that way. It's not because they were guilted into this. It's not because they will, they will have a nicer house in heaven or virgins in heaven. By the way, that's a, that's a different team. Uh, that's not what we believe. It's because they love Jesus and they love you. <laughs> they love Jesus and they love you. And they want you to share the joy that they love, Right? It's the same reason they invite you out to eat at a place they like, like to eat. It's the same reason they want you to watch a film that they liked. It's the same reason. They love Jesus. They want you to share in that joy. They want you to be brought into that. You say, but Chris, that's just a desire to convert me. I know what's going on. And you're right. No bait and switch at Parkside Bible Church, right? It's exactly, you're, you're hit the, right on the nose. That's exactly right. We're up front, we're unapologetic about our love for Jesus and our desire for you, each one of you, to love him back and to join into that relationship that what he has done. You have to understand, we all try to convert people to what we love most, right? To to say, I'm glad you, you know, you got this religious thing going on, you know, but, you know, please keep that to yourself. You you shouldn't try to convert people to Jesus. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's like saying to me, I heard, Chris, that you like the Dodgers, but please don't tell me about them right? Don't talk about them. Don't be a fan of them. 
That, that doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, I'm going to. I love them. I enjoy them. I like the team. I follow them. I'm going to talk about them. That's kind of how it goes. You have to talk about what you like. Why is that any different from people's love for Jesus? And there's one more thing about David before we move on here. When you come all the way to Christ, when you get the gospel, you find that your prayers are not so much request-driven as they are praise-driven, right? Was David in a tough situation out in the wilderness? You bet he was. Could he have made some requests of God about his situation to change it? Yeah. And would that have been wrong? No, that's, that's okay. He could have done that. And he does that. Other psalms, he does that. But I want you to notice in this psalm, as you scan down through there, not a single request. It's not a request. He doesn't ask for anything other than, other than more of God. <laughs> but he doesn't ask for a change of situation. Two Sundays ago, I was, I was having a hard time breathing up here. Some of you know that if you were here. I had my inhaler with me. Thank you to Indiana Flowers Blooming and Allergies. But, um, but later that afternoon, um, I scrounged the, the entire city of Indianapolis trying to find a pharmacy that was open uh, to get some Zyrtec D because I needed the D part. And unfortunately, you can't buy that over the counter anymore. You got to buy it behind the counter because somebody watched too much Breaking Bad and they're making stuff with it, right? So, so, we had to, so I had to like go everywhere to try to figure this thing out. And like, I just need, I'm not, promise you, I'm not making drugs here. I just, I need to breathe, you know? And I'd go to one pharmacy and Sophie was with me. We'd go to one pharmacy and it'd be closed. Go to the next one, be closed. I'd look up one and be like, oh, it's open. It's got five more minutes. And, you know, I'd call, hey, can you hold the doors? Oh, yeah. So I come in and you're like, oh, and I go to register and it's like 601. And they're like, oh, the register's shut down. You can't buy it. I'm like, oh. So I'm like going all over. Finally, found me yourself a 24 hour. Now I know. Okay, go to the 24 hour one. You probably like Chris, that would be the first thing I would have done, but I, I didn't do that. Went to the 24 hour, I got what I needed, right? I'll probably never go back again. I don't ever really go to pharmacies in that way. Won't ever go back much. I got what I needed and I went back home, right? That's the way some of you are with Jesus. He's a place you go to with a shopping list, right? Things you couldn't maybe find somewhere else. You couldn't figure it out on your own. You couldn't fix it on your own. So, okay, I guess, well, last resort, I'll. Throw up something to God here. Maybe he'll help me out. Um, he's a place you rarely visit, a place uh, your prayer time only heats up when you're in the bind. But when you come all the way to Christ, when you stop playing the church game, Jesus becomes less of a pharmacy you visit for rare needs and honestly more like a concert you visit on a daily basis, right? It's just someone you rejoice in, love, and want to talk to and want to share about. So do you find yourself talking about Jesus more and more? Do you find him as a a topic of conversation, not just with other Christians, that's important, but with unbelievers as well? That's a sign that you've come all the way to Christ. There's, There's, again, streams of living water flowing from you. He's on your lips. Evidence number five, you obey God. You obey. Verse eight, David says, I follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. Here we get a little insight into David's resolve. When he says he follows close, that's an important word. It's the same word used in Genesis for the first marriage. When Adam is told to cling to his wife, right? The word literally is the idea of glue. It's basically God's way of saying that husbands are really needy. You got to cling. I'm sorry, ladies. He's going to have to cling to you, hold on to you. Um, it, 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 it means to make a promise and to cling to that promise, uncompromising, to obey and keep on doing so. That's what David is saying of God, to God. This is a resolve of obeying God no matter what our feelings might be like or what our culture might be pressing in on us. David is saying, I'm sticking myself to you, God, whether you like it or not. And that doesn't mean that David was perfect. You're getting far from it. But what it does mean is that even when David strayed, 
He always came to his senses. He always returned. He always repented. Why? Because deep in his soul, he couldn't walk away, right? The Holy Spirit of God brought conviction, brought him back home. He was like that meteor caught in the orbit of God. Like he just couldn't escape it, couldn't get away, always came back, couldn't break free. And this led David to believe that God was worth obeying. He was worth obeying. Listen, he said this in 1 Samuel 15, 22. Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Jesus wants an obedient heart, not a performer's heart. He wants people compelled by his grace who remain loyal and obey him regardless of what their culture might say, what situation they may find themselves in, or how they might feel. This is because at the end of the day, you look at what God commands of you, and you feel what your heart desires to want to do, and you choose to believe that obeying Jesus is better and more profitable and more satisfying than going that direction. Those, those who haven't come all the way to Jesus, but rather play church and only look to obey God when it looks good for them or when it's convenient to them or when they feel like it, don't understand the gospel. Now listen, some of you may be like saying things like, well, my heart's not in it. My heart's not in it, so I'm not going to obey because to obey would be make me a hypocrite. I've, I've had people tell me this, right? I mean, I, I mean, I don't feel like doing it, so I mean, I, I'm just not going to do it because if I do it, I don't want, the last thing I want to be is a hypocrite, so I'm not going to obey. <laughs> and, and to that, I just say, you know, you, sometimes you just need to suck it up and grow up and stop making excuses and obey, right? Even if you don't feel like doing it, you just got to do it. Uh, I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like saying, I, I knew, you know, I knew I shouldn't sleep with my girlfriend, but I really wanted to, and to not do so would have made me a hypocrite. So I had to proceed. I didn't want to be a hypocrite, so I decided to be a fornicator instead. That's a bad idea. That's a sin twice now. You're both a hypocrite and a fornicator, right? So don't do that, okay? Even if you don't feel like it, go with what is right before God. A sign of true conversion, a sign of coming all the way to Christ is when you don't just repent over the sins you've committed, but you commit over the things of not wanting to obey. You see? It goes to a whole nother level when you get the gospel. Like you're like, God, I, I know I did this and I shouldn't have, but... I repent of not even wanting to do it, right? When you get the gospel, you repent of not just your actions, but of your motives too. Your soul is grieved that you just don't, your heart doesn't want to obey God at times. And you not only repent of your sins, and I've said this before, and I think it's make a run right of your head to say this, but you not only repent of your sins when you get the gospel, you repent of your righteousness. You repent of your righteousness. You say, what in the world does that mean? You repent over doing the right things for the wrong reasons. You repent over leaning, leaning on the fact that you're a pretty good person, you keep the rules pretty well, right? You repent over both the things you've done wrong and things you've done right because you've done the, done the right things the wrong way or the wrong reason, you see? It's a heart transformation starts to take place. You say, well, what do I do, Chris, if I, if I, want to, if I, if I don't want to obey? All right? I mean, I want to obey, but my heart's not in it. What do I do? Well, let's take uh, John Piper talked about this one time. He talked about giving. Now, that was a great example. Um, he talked about giving. He says, you know, you, you know, Jesus says where your treasure is, that your heart is also. He also says he wants you to be a cheerful giver. So you come to church, time, you know, time for communion, offering, you're wrestling, you're going, ah, I, don't, I want to keep this money to myself. Like, I got ideas for this money. I don't want to give it to God. And he says, so, so what you do is you write the check, right? You set up the payment option, whatever it is you're going to do. You confess to God that you don't want to do it. You ask him that God, in doing this obedience, act of obedience, I know I'm supposed to do, but I don't want to do it. Please change my heart in the action of obedience and then give, right? Just, just do it. Obey and ask God to, to change your heart in the midst of that. But don't resist doing what God has called you to do. He's clearly laid out in Scripture just because you don't want to be a hypocrite, right? Repent of being a hypocrite. 
but don't, but don't not do it, right? So do you find yourself resolved to obey God despite whether you feel like it or not? Do you repent of not just your wrong actions, but of your wrong motives? Do you repent of your righteousness? It's a sign. It's a sign. You've come all the way to Christ. It's a sign that there's living water flowing. Your heart is alive. Lastly, final evidence, you have hope in God. Last couple of verses, down in verse 9, he says, Those who intend to destroy my life will go into the pits of the earth. They will be given over to the power of the sword. They'll become meal for jackals, right? But the king will rejoice in God. Remember where David is now. Okay, go back to where he's at. He is in the wilderness. He is hiding out from people who are trying to kill him. He is not clanging swords anytime soon, okay? If anyone's close to being a jackal meal, it's David, all right? But David is confident that God will do what's right. And so David mentions nothing about himself bringing justice here. Realize that. He's only talking about God doing it. David is, not, is, is just going to rejoice and leave it to God to deal with. You see, that takes a great amount of faith, Chris. I mean, that, that's, that's strong faith. I don't believe that I have. I mean, what, what do I do? You don't, you, don't, you don't know what people have done to me. You don't know how much injustice I have faced. And you're right, I don't. Jesus does, though. And when you look back at this psalm, David's wrestling was great, and he was struggling, he was isolated, he was alone, and yet he was hoping in God, and he was anticipating that, and he was clinging by a thread. But I want you to realize that in the midst of all the suffering that he had gone through is still nothing compared to ultimately what Jesus would go through. If you scan this psalm, we see this. When Jesus left his place of glory, came to our plant to reach us, right? He, he for the first time, think about this, thirst. He'd never thirst before. From the cross, what did he say? I thirst. It was more than a, a physical cry of like his, he was, his throat was parched. It was a cry of his soul because he would go on to say how God had forsaken him, right? He felt our sin he was bearing. He was bearing our distance from God. When he was in heaven, he saw the glory and power of God every single day. And yet here he walked on our earth. He had to pray things like, Father, glorify me, John 17. He says, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. Just take me back there. Jesus was himself the word of God. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. He invited people to be around him, to, to, to be near him, to come find rest in him, right? But instead, what did he get? He got ridiculed. He got laughed at. He got mocked. And he got killed. Jesus was praised by angels endlessly in heaven, came to our earth to be blasphemed by men. Jesus obeyed God fully, saying over and over again, right, not my will, but your will be done. And what did it earn him? It earned him a wooden cross with three nails. And yet when he died, he asked the Father to forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly. So when you talk about having strong faith, that's not the issue, guys. What you need is just a little, a little faith. Just a little faith in a strong Savior who accomplished it all for you, right? It's not about how strong your faith is. It's about how strong your Savior is. Tim Keller, in his book, Reason for God, gave this story. He said, imagine you're on a high cliff. You lose your footing, you begin to fall. Just beside you as you fall is a branch sticking out of the very edge of the cliff. It's your only hope. And it's more than strong enough to support your weight. How can it save you? He says, well, if your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you're lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you'll be saved. Why? It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. 
Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Jesus is a strong branch. You may have your doubts. You may have your uncertainties. But the call today is to reach out and grab the branch. Right? Reach out and grab the branch. Cast all your hope on Jesus in the midst of all the doubts and uncertainties. God is the all-satisfying God. He is strong enough to hold all of it. He is, again, he's a home for you who are wandering souls. He is the water for you who are thirsty souls. He is the peace for you who are troubled souls today. And he is the rest for you who are weary souls today. He is that refuge and strength to go to. He is the Savior. Jesus again would say this, John seven thirty seven. If anyone thirsty, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture says, will have streams of living water flowing from deep within him. Grab the branch. Believe. Come all the way to Christ today. So we go to communion and we give our offerings at this moment. This is for you who know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, please, this is not for you. We're not asking you for anything, asking you for money or anything like that. Just stay seated. But you who are, who are believers, who are following Jesus, you who are part of the covenant community as well as our church, we give our offerings and we take communion. We say, why do we do this? To remember the body and blood of Jesus was broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. We take it. You say, oh, Chris, my heart's not in it. What did we talk about earlier? You go to it. You ask God to forgive you for not desiring, not wanting to, not wanting to commune with God, not wanting to be near God. Take the time. That's why we give you time before communion to, to settle things right with God. Settle up, right? Get real. Get honest with God. Take the mask off. Be real. Confess. Be transparent with God. There'll be people here to pray for you uh, around the front. There's tables in the front and the back. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the invitation that you give to us today. All you ask is that we'd be thirsty. You don't ask us to have lived a certain life. You don't ask us to have all the right answers. You don't ask us to have it all together even. You don't ask us to even know what in the world we're doing right now. <laughs> you, just, you want us to be desperate. You want us to be thirsty. You want us to be hungry for you. And I pray, God, for those who have that desire that you would satisfy them this morning. And I pray for those who don't have that. They don't feel that. God, would you help them feel their distance from you? Would you visit them even now by your Holy Spirit to press that upon their soul? God, and you would draw near to them as they draw near to you. God, bring grace, mercy, and forgiveness and bring strength that, God, we can leave this place in hope and have the love of Jesus on our lips and serve you in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.